Good morning. Oop, yep, it's on. <laughs> All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to pick up in verse 2, and we're going to talk about excessive sorrow today. Everybody excited? Well, that was probably the right response. Um, in other words, no. Um, sorrow has been a common theme so far in the book of 2 Corinthians because of the background, which we'll rehash in a minute. Today, however, we're talking about a particular type of sorrow or Another way to say it is sorrow caused by your own sin. Have you ever felt really guilty, ashamed, broken? You know, like Adam and Eve, you've done something and now you're hiding behind a bush and God is asking where you are, knowing fully where you are, but you're wondering where you are and why you are and what you're doing and how did you get here and what do you do with that intense emotional grief? So the word we're going to have in our translation today is grief. Now, in American culture, in our English language, the word grief has a much more precise meaning than the word it's being used to mean here. When, when we use the word grief, we assume what just happened. Someone's grieving because of what? Death, right? So that's how we use the word. The word in the Greek here is their word for pain. Um, it could be any kind of pain. It could be you hit your thumb with a hammer pain. It could be emotional pain. It is usually used with emotional pain. But in this particular context, it's going to be the pain that comes when you recognize you really messed that one up. You did something foolish, you did something sinful, you did something arrogant. Have you ever said something and right as soon as it came out of your mouth, you, you really wished it had gone through the filter first and it missed the filter and came out and it's like it's been said. And now you feel really stupid and wish you could take it back, but you can't unsay it because it's been aired or... Um, I don't know, sometimes I feel like Facebook allows us to, you know, ignore the filter entirely and we social media these things out and then maybe later we realize that was a really, really bad idea. We're going to deal with that in our context today, but to remember what's going on, we need to see it in Paul's context as he's dealing with the group of people. So most of the time, so far in the letter, we've been looking at Paul's sorrow in response to being the victim of the circumstance. And You've been there. We've all been there. We relate to Paul very well in this particular category. We've felt the pressure. We've felt the, the agony of betrayal. We know what it's like to have anxiety about the daily activities. And for Paul, he had this constant anxiety. He even, he can't let it go. He's talked about it for several chapters. He's going to bring it back up again in a few more chapters in 2 Corinthians. He was really pressured because of what was going on in this church, especially this particular church that 2 Corinthians is written to. But now we're going to detail the emotional response they had once they realized they had sinned. That aha moment, that maybe oh no moment when you realize the spotlight is on you. So let's just remind ourselves of what's going on, the context here in 2 Corinthians. So Paul planted the church. He went to Corinth. He preached the gospel. People got saved. The church began. He leaves then he writes a letter that we don't have, and then he writes a letter we do have, and we call that letter what? 1 Corinthians, even though technically it would be the second letter, but it's 1 Corinthians. After 1 Corinthians, Paul and the church at Corinth have a falling out. They butt heads. In fact, it gets so bad, Paul shows up in person to settle the matter, but when he gets to the church at Corinth in person, it does not go well. Someone in the church, we don't know who, we're not sure, someone has led a mutiny, has gone a different direction. Last week we emphasized that that different direction also implied different 
teachings within the gospel. Maybe it let them do certain types of sins that following the true gospel of Christ does not permit you to do. It says you cannot do that with a clear conscience in Christ. But they're following this. There's a leader. Paul shows up and says, no, can't have it this way. They side with the other guy, kick Paul out of town. So Paul leaves. Of course, he's devastated. He's going through a lot of trauma in ministry anyway. This is where we get into that Asia experience, if you've read in Acts, where Paul goes to the town and he, he preaches so well that it causes a riot because the, the idol worship in the town actually takes a significant downturn, so much so that the people who make idols are losing business and losing money. And when you take money from people, what happens? There's, there's anger, there's revolt, there's revolution, there's a full-blown riot breaks out in Paul's name. Now, we think Luke probably left out some of the details because Paul says during this time, he received what he thought was the death sentence, meaning he thought even according to God's plan, it was over. There was no way out of the scenario that was happening. And in the middle of that, all this stuff with Corinth is going down. So he writes them another letter. He's emotionally wounded. He's broken. He's depressed. He's anxious. And he writes a letter back to the church that we call the severe letter. We don't have this letter. It's referenced in Scripture a few times. But he writes this letter to that church, and it's harsh. And it's so harsh, he almost feels bad for saying it. But it was true, and it needed to be said. And we're going to see that emotional you know, tension in the t- text today. Should, should he have said everything that he said in that letter? He's got some doubts. He knows he should, but he's human. He's got doubts about that letter. Finally, after a lot of time passes, Paul is anxious. He can't even focus on ministry anymore. He leaves the spot where it says the Lord opened a door for ministry there, but he couldn't even focus on the ministry in that location. He, he went on because he wanted to meet the guy who had taken the letter to Corinth and find out how the church responded to it. Now, we've talked about it a bunch of times, and we know by this point Paul's going to tell us what happened, but just to recap as we dive in, we know that response already reading the letter, how did the church respond to that severe letter at the hand of Titus? What was their general response? What's the word we've been using? They repented. They turned. They walked away from that other leader and have returned to Paul, which is why Paul wrote this letter in the first place. So Paul's happy. He's excited. He's delighted. He's still dealing with some of the drama that happened, and there's going to be more fallout to come. But in general, technically speaking, he's already won. They have changed their minds, they have repented towards Paul, and he's been making an argument for them that Paul, he's saying, we had all this conflict and you rose some accusations against me. Some of those accusations sounded true, but Paul's coming back with this retort saying, but you're wrong. I am actually a really good example of an apostle. I have a clear conscience. I've done ministry God's way, and so he's defending himself. Because even though they've repented, he recognizes that if they have the wrong worldview, it looks like Paul isn't a real good example of a Christian. Because if you believe that Christians must be blessed by God if they're obedient, they're following God, bad things won't happen to them. Well, what does it look like for Paul if that's how your theology works? He's shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been rejected. He's been cast out of the town. He's been... All kinds of negative things have happened to him. And the people against Paul said, see, this is proof. If God was on his side, 
his life would be blessed. And Paul's saying the reverse. He says, and two weeks ago we read this, he says, here's my resume. All of this hardship, all of this brokenness, all of this pain, all of this sorrow, that's proof that I'm following God. He makes this implicit connection between consequences, suffering, pain, and sorrow is intimately acquainted with the Christian life. It's built in because we are choosing to worship a different value system than the world worships. And if you think about it, we are telling the world their idols are false. You should repent and worship the one true God. How many people are going to respond to that with a positive smile on their face? Oh, I'm so glad you told me. Well, some do. But what's the more normal response to that gospel message? Gospel, we could call it the gospel accusation. It's anger. It's distrust. It's beatings. It's all these sufferings Paul has experienced. So he's got all of that going on. He's defending himself. And now he's going to do this interesting twist. Rather than just defend himself, he's now going to defend the church at Corinth. Now think about that. Defend the church at Corinth. Who was the one in the wrong in this scenario? Well, the church at Corinth was. He's going to end this paragraph, this section we're in today, by saying, well, see, I was right all along. I have confidence in you that you were innocent. They were innocent. What in the world does that mean? So to make sense of that, let's dive in. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to pick up in verse 2. It says, make room for Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction... Remember all this stuff going on in Asia? When he gets to Macedonia where he's trying to get this message from Titus, it's it's even worse. He says, in all of that affliction, and I'm overflowing with joy, because of the church at Corinth who backstabbed him, now he's overflowing with joy and he has confidence and pride in this church. Now he's about to be there, so he's writing this letter to them before he arrives. So he's going to defend them. So see how he says this, verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now, has that ever described a time in your life? It's like you you leave some place to escape all the negative emotions. You get somewhere else. It might be just as bad, maybe even worse. You feel like you're fighting on the outside and there's fear within. Now, this is where Paul's ended up. All of this is happening Things go very poorly for him. He left an open door, comes to a place where he can't focus on ministry now because of the persecution. And he says, verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, what's the significance of Titus? Where has Titus been? In Corinth. Titus is the one who took the severe letter. Now, he's returning to Paul to tell him how that went down. So, We know if he's comforted by the coming of Titus, you already know what happened. They repented. It says, not only by his coming, so he's like, I like Titus and all, but I'm not happy just because Titus showed up. It's because of what Titus had to say. 
You follow what I'm saying? So, and not only his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us about your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So what is it that Titus is telling Paul happened in Corinth? There's longing, there's mourning, and there is zeal for Paul, as opposed to they've been following this false teacher. So Paul rejoices at hearing this, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, so see how he's using the word grieve here, it's not about a loved one dies and you're in grief. We, we have a much more specialized usage of that term for them. This is emotional pain. He says, I wrote this letter, I made you grieve with my letter. So what's the idea? He wrote a letter and they felt how when they heard the letter? Upset, sad, maybe even wounded. They've, they're broken because of the letter that Paul wrote. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Have you ever had that emotion? I don't regret writing that letter at all, except a little bit. That's what he's saying. I get that. He knows, as the leader, what he said ought to be said. But it still hurts his heart to say it and know that it's going to hurt. It's going to wound. He didn't like saying it, but he had to say it. He was supposed to say it. I do not regret it, though though I did regret it. For I see that, that the letter grieved you though only for a while. Now, I really love that in English there was two that's in that sentence. I feel like that just validated some of the, the red ink I got in grammar in college. But uh, he says, For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. So he knows when they read that letter, it hurt their feelings. But more than hurt their feelings, it deeply grieved them. Now, when we say grieved in this context, then we're thinking intense emotional pain. Now, what's interesting is in the Greek culture, now Corinth, of course, what culture is Corinth? It's Greek. In their culture, this word for sorrow, or we're translating as grief, actually is a Greek evil spirit, not quite a deity. You know, they have, you know, Zeus and things like that, and they have these half-human, half-god, Hercules, things like that. They also have just evil spirits that have names. And then there's three sisters that are called the Algae or something. They're Dolores in the Roman um, Latin language. So the three Dolores, evil spirits, I think it's anguish, sorrow, and grief. This is one of them. This word had its own category, and they called it an evil spirit because when it came upon you, it was like being possessed. It just flooded you with emotion, flooded you with tears. It's like you lost control and it overwhelmed your being in this emotional pain. Now, that actually makes sense why they would describe it that way, doesn't it? Now, we're not saying Paul's using the word to say it's an evil spirit, but in their language, in their culture, in their background, they thought of it that way. This was like some thing controlling your life when that anguish came upon you, and yet Paul's saying, I'm glad that happened to you. I mean, I kind of regret it, but I'm glad it happened because of what it produced. So see how he works this out. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, well, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. So he just did something very interesting. So he took their culture. He says, you didn't feel that evil spirit version of 
Greek uh, of grief. You felt a different kind of grief. And so instead of an evil spirit, you see where Paul's going with this, what kind of spirit? You felt the Holy Spirit kind of grief. You felt the God kind of grief. Not some thing in your demonic system of belief in your old pagan religion. Not that kind of grief. You felt the kind of grief that God brings. You felt the godly grief so that you suffered no loss. All right, so we're going to have to differentiate then between what we're told is godly grief in verse 9 and then see what it's called in verse 10. Here's our opposite scenario. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. All right, so just put yourself in their scenario. So here's what they've done. They have definitely sinned against the Apostle Paul. They've sinned against God. They had turned from the true following of Christ, the true gospel. Many of them had invited certain sins into their life that Christianity does not permit. They were willfully living in sin, and now it has been exposed. Paul has called it out, and some grief has come upon them. They have excessive sorrow because of what they have done. So Paul is saying there's two different ways that that happens. There's a godly version of grief or sorrow or shame. There's a godly version of, oh no, woe is me, look what I have done. And there is a worldly version of, oh no, look what I have done. Now it's going to relate to a common question that gets brought up in Christian circles. And so we make statements like this all the time. We see some supposed believer have a great moral failure. And we say, I don't know how a Christian could do that. You ever heard or even made that expression before? All right. It happens. We, we see people, we know people who grew up in the church and we see them do something and we say, I don't see how a believer could do that thing. They were a true believer. How could they do that thing? Well, we have a really interesting story in the Old Testament about a guy named King David. You've ever heard of King David before? What's King David's most popular positive comment made about him in the Old Testament. Do you remember? He is a what? A man after God's own heart. Now, is that people describing David? Or is that how God describes David? That's God's description of David. When he says, you know, I don't want Saul to be king anymore. I don't want that kind of king. I want a king like David, a man after my own heart. In fact, David was such a good king, in a lot of ways he was considered perfect in the Old Testament. He's the standard. If you want to be a good king, you have to be like David. And if you weren't a good king, the accusation would be, well, you're not a David. You're not a good king like David. There's a lot of positive said about David. He is almost exclusively represented in a positive light in the Old Testament. But what's the story? You know, the, the big ugly story in David's life is what? David and Bathsheba. Now, there's a lot of sins in David's life. In fact, we go through, we see David gets in trouble, not just that time. He, he makes a lot of mistakes. Christians sin. No question, David is a true believer in the Old Testament. There's no doubt of that whatsoever. He wrote much of the Psalms. He's inspired to write Scripture. God has a holy anointing on him, made the covenant promise to him that his seed would inherit his throne eternally in Jesus Christ our Lord David is an awesome character in the Old Testament, but he is a sinner. But here's the key. When you look at David's life, David committed this sin, 
with Bathsheba. You know how the story goes. He, he sleeps with her, produces a child. We, we referenced this last week. Eventually ends up killing his friend and many of his excellent soldiers just to cover up this sin. Fast forward a little bit of time, and Nathan the prophet shows up to David, gives this story about a man who had a bunch of sheep, but he steals a sheep from the guy who only had one sheep. And, Nathan, and, and David says, man, that guy ought to die. And Nathan quickly changes the story and says, David, I'm, I'm talking about you. You're the guy who has a bunch of sheep and stole the sheep from the other guy, and you ought to die. Now, here's how the question was asked. Remember, how could a Christian commit such a sin? That's not really where the difference between the believer and the unbeliever happens. If you've ever met a Christian, you've met a sinner. If you've ever met a non-Christian, you've also met a sinner. Right? Both sin. The difference is in the next part of the story. How does David respond to Nathan calling him out? Well, we know exactly how David responds. If you have your Bible, I want, I want to show you. It's called Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Let me read the opening. You know how like, all the Psalms have to the choir master or a Psalm of David or a a, you know, a song of Asaph, things like that. This one has one of those. It's not technically part of verse 1, but it is there. It says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So what's the context for Psalm 21? This is how David responds after being called out by the prophet. Let's just read this psalm. I want you to see how David responds. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now hear what he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now what does that imply? Where does joy go? It's gone. When his sin was called out, what New Testament word do you think we could use to describe the emotional state that David entered into? It's that grief, that evil spirit grief we're talking about. So it's that word, but it's not the evil spirit kind. It was the what kind? The Holy Spirit kind. It's godly grief. But look down. Verse 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You hear that? David has just sinned, and the proper response was not that he go to the temple and make a sacrifice, but that what happened? 
verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what's going on with David in that moment? David has proven what he is. His sin gets called out, and the true Christian's response is what? It's godly grief. That leads to repentance, confession to the Lord, and ultimately restoration. Godly grief produces genuine repentance if you have God. Let's think about what the other option is. What other kind of grief is there? Here's a quick side note of Christianity. The Bible is very clear about this. All of you worship something. If you worship God and you grieve that you have broken your vows to that God and repent to God, that is godly grief. If you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping something else. Maybe it's your own pride. Maybe it's your self-worth, your own glory or money or wealth or fame or prestige, something. You're worshiping something and your sorrow is that you're not as awesome as you thought you were. You ever committed a sin and you're, you're upset because, oh man, I thought I was better than that? That's sin. That's worldly sorrow. Because now, the way you're going to repent is, well, I'm going to do better next time. Oh, I'm going to fight harder next time. And the harder you fight, the harder you fall. And how do you think that cycle works out in the end? All you're doing is laying down different heartfelt emotions and heartfelt sort of repentance to your false idol, and it will kill you in the end. There's no hope or life in that. But godly grief produces a genuine repentance because it's about your worship. Now, where does that lead? Let's keep going. So we were in verse 10 last. Let's go down to verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So this godly grief produced a repentance that has these qualities. To clear yourselves. So there's an earnestness to clear yourself. There was indignation or or anger over it. There's fear. Now fear towards whom? God. Not the other parties involved, but fear before the Lord. What longing. What zeal, what punishment. Now, in this case, the punishment was directed at the leader who led this mutiny against Paul. Remember, Paul had to tell him earlier in the letter, okay, that's cool and all, but you need to calm down. You went too far. You need to forgive this guy and let him back in. But their desire to purge the evil from their midst was part of the proof that they had this godly repentance going on. They they want to have an eagerness to clear their name. Indignation, fear, long-suffering, zeal, and punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Innocent. In the, did they actually mutiny against Paul? Did they run him out of town? Did they reject him? Yeah. Did all of those things. But Paul just said, they have proven themselves innocent. Now, we use that word innocent, maybe in a slightly different way than Paul means here. Because if you're innocent, what do we mean when we say that word? If you're innocent of this matter, we would say what about the people in the church? They didn't really do any of that. But they did do all of this. And their repentance now is proving them to be 
innocent. All right, before we completely make sense of that, let's finish the paragraph and see if we can connect these dots. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, so that's the guy they punished, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, as in Paul himself, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. Why did he write this letter? To show them what they already were. Well, that's fascinating. To show them that they already had a genuine faith in their God. God, he believed this about them. And when it all came down to this, Paul wasn't upset any longer. Now he's excited because the truth has been revealed. And what was the truth? That they were real believers. That he hadn't done his ministry in vain. They'd truly come to the Lord. And so when we see a Christian commit a great moral failure, and then their response to that sin exploding is repentance, how would Paul respond? Oh, praise the Lord, that one's legit. Because what proved the legitimacy of that believer is not sinlessness. It's what? It's repentance. Repentance validates the believer. So this expression, this next blank I want you to fill in. You can misread it, so I want to make sure we, we understand it properly. Genuine repentance cleans the conscience. Now, I don't mean it forgives your sin. God forgives sin, not you repenting forgives your sin. God forgives sin, but our repentance allows us to have a clean conscience. So we repent and have a clean conscience. Now, just to be completely clear, let me read Hebrews chapter 10, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. But I want you to see what it says. It says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts Sprinkled clean, sprinkled clean by what? What's that lingo in Hebrews? This is the blood of Christ. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our conscience has been cleaned by the blood of Christ. So I want to say that abundantly clear. In second and first John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you in order that you might not sin. But... When you do sin, because he knows you will, you would think the first thing he tells them to do is stop or repent. That's not. The first statement out of the apostle's mouth is when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is our propitiation. He is the one who sprinkled us clean, who washed us clean of all sin. God does this work. And if God has done that work in you, it will produce repentance. So when you experience godly grief, if you're a true believer, that grief is going to lead you not into deeper sorrow, not into, well, I'm going to try harder, but into running to the cross of Christ. It's going to lead you into making this about your relationship with God. And you're not going to try to fix your wrongs in terms of, well, if I fix my wrongs, I'll I'll get to go to heaven. I can make up. I can make it all right. That's not the zeal here. The zeal is I return to the Lord, and because I've returned to the Lord, I'm going to have a Zacchaeus experience. What did he do when he repented? God forgave him. Do you remember what Zacchaeus had done wrong? Cheated all these people out of money? 
Well, how did he respond after God forgave him? He was empowered to give it back, to make it right. So just think about your own life right now. There's sins in your life that you need to repent of that have caused you sorrow, that have caused you anguish and anxiety because you know you have done this, you know you are guilty, and you want to make it right. Well, first and foremost, the only one who can make it right is God. You have sinned against God. David said, you and you only have I sinned against, O God. And then he goes on to say, create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me. That happens first. But in the power of that gospel, It's applied over and over and over in my life. That leads us to a zeal of repentance where our conscience is cleared because we're doing everything to restore, if possible, what we have done wrong. If you've wounded someone, do you remember what Jesus said? If you're offering your altar, at the altar you're offering your gift at the altar and there you realize that your brother has something against you, i.e. you have sinned against your brother. What does Jesus tell you to do in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember? You go make it right. You go make that confession. You offer that repentance. You make it right. We have a godly desire because of our salvation, because of the blood sprinkling us clean, to if if at all possible, make it right. Now, we can't fix what we break. We can't do that. You ever said something that ruined a relationship? You ever done something that caused great pain in someone else's life? You can't make it not happen but you can own it, you can confess it, you can do what you can, do your part to make it right. Now, whether or not it gets made right is not up to you, and that has no bearing on whether or not your conscience gets cleared. But your conscience is cleared by the blood of Christ, therefore you are empowered to do the right thing and try to make the situation right, if possible. Repent. You stole something, give it back. Make it up. Somehow, if at all possible, Fix the scenario, not to get salvation. That's where the key difference is. But because of the clear conscience God has given you, you repent. So let's keep going. Therefore, we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. So what had Paul told Titus? Dude, they'll repent. I know they will, because they're actually believers. Paul was right. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Now hear this. This heartfelt repentance, it strengthened the body of Christ at Corinth. So we have this false notion that what's going to make a body of Christians strong is not sinning. But that's not the key. What makes the body of Christians strong is the repentance, the restoration, the reconciliation. Think about this in any human relationship you have even a marriage relationship. If a marriage relationship never has any fights, never has any disagreements, it's not a healthy relationship. But you know the better relationships are the ones that have been through those rough patches, the ones that have been restored, the ones where there's been repentance and reconciliation because there's been growth. 
that happens, it strengthens a marriage. It also strengthens the body of Christ. So if you're in a position where you're worried, I don't want to go through with this. I don't want to, I don't want to try to restore this relationship. I don't want to try to see this happen in my life. Then you are depriving the body of the growth that it could experience if we repent together. If we restore these relationships. We forgive one another of trespasses and then live like we meant it. That produces a strength in the body unparalleled in the world. And Jesus said, after all, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. That's just one example of how that transpires.